In the ancient world, when you bowed before a king, you were acknowledging his position, his authority, his right to rule, his right to rule you. And this is always how true faith responds to Jesus. It responds in submission to him as king. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. The Christmas season brings the biblical account of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the promised King. Have you ever truly acknowledged Christ's right to rule you? Have you ever bowed your knee and your heart and your will to Him? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series titled, Let Earth Receive Her King. We're looking at the story of Christmas through the lens of the Gospel of Matthew. Throughout this series, you'll discover that the real lesson of Christmas is that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, Emmanuel, and your rightful King. And the key question for you to weigh this Christmas is, Whose response to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel account best reflects your own? Keep all that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. Just to show you the kind of man he was, as he neared death, he ordered that hundreds of the leading Jewish people of the land, the the aristocrats, the nobility, that hundreds of them be arrested and incarcerated, and then on the day of his death, he ordered that they be executed. His reason? So that on the day of his death, there would be true mourning in the land of Israel. Fortunately, his orders on that front were disobeyed. Clearly, this man was insanely paranoid about losing his position. And rightly so, because Herod was not Jewish. He was Idumean. His father was an Edomite. In fact, he was a descendant of Esau and not Jacob. He had connived and flattered and bribed and fought his way into his position in Israel. By the time the Magi arrived, he was about 69 years old and he had reigned for 35 years. 25 years before this story, the Roman Senate had conferred this title on Herod, the king of the Jews. Now you understand Herod's reaction to the Magi. Verse 3 says, when, king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That means, the, the Greek word means to be stirred up, to be in a state of inner turmoil. Of course, because he faced the very real risk of losing his own personal empire that he'd spent his entire life building. Verse 3 goes on to say, And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. For 25 years, the Jews in Jerusalem had learned to be troubled when Herod was because it would invariably mean trouble for them. Now, Herod had never been one to wait for events to take their own course, and so he launched a plan. He knew where the Messiah was born. He'd already learned that from the religious leaders. It was in Bethlehem, but he needed to know who the Messiah was. And the easiest way for him to find out would be to use the Magi. 
Herod was a user. This was always his course of action, and he's going to use them. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi, and he ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Herod sent a secret message to the wise men and then met with them in secret as well. Why? Because he's covering his tracks. He's already decided what he's going to do. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. Now, don't miss the drama of this statement. When you read the Scripture, always read it with a, with a bit of, um, of inspired sort of imagination as you put yourself in this situation. Think about what Herod now knows. Herod knew that this king was the one promised in the Old Testament and that he was divinely chosen unlike Herod. He also knew that this was Israel's Messiah, the one prophesied in the Hebrew Scripture. But Herod was so concerned about his own agenda that he just didn't care. He was willing to do whatever it took to get what he wanted, even if it meant killing the Messiah. At the same time, he pretended an interest in spiritual things when it served his advantage. Notice verse 8, When you found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now, as disingenuous as it obviously was, Herod was a grade-A hypocrite and manipulator, and so he convinced these men that he was genuine. When, in fact, his real response to the rightful king of him and everyone was one of selfish defiance. You know, the world is filled with people like Herod, who live solely to advance their own agenda. They may pretend hypocritical worship to Christ, and and like Herod, they may even for a time fool many good people. But inwardly, and often outwardly, they live in defiance of the commands and demands that Jesus Christ makes on their lives. Herod is a perfect example of those who respond to Christ in defiant rebellion against his rule, but perhaps hidden beneath a facade of spiritual hypocrisy. Let me just say to you, if like Herod, your heart is defiant against Jesus Christ, your rightful king, he is not fooled by, nor is he interested in, your hypocritical, self-serving worship. And he is still your rightful king. And either you will acknowledge him in submission in this life, or you will acknowledge him at the judgment in the life to come. But acknowledge him, you will. Settled indifference, religious distraction, selfish defiance. These are all typical sinful responses to Jesus the King. But thank God they're not the only responses. This story also illustrates the only right response to Jesus as king, and that is wholehearted devotion. We see this in verses 9 through 12. And and this response comes from the most unlikely people. Remember, as we learned last week, the Magi were pagan idolaters involved in astrology, divination, Zoroastrianism. In Old Testament Israel, they would have been stoned to death. 
but it was left to them to show the Jews and the entire world the right way, the only right response to Jesus the King. In verses 9 through 11, we find their wholehearted devotion to Jesus of Nazareth. Let's look at their devotion together. First of all, it was characterized by seeking him, by seeking him, verse 9. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. Herod had answered their question. Back in verse 2, their question was, where is he? In verse 8, Herod sent them to Bethlehem, so they know where he is. And as they started to Bethlehem, the star that they had seen in the east, probably as we learned last time, the Shekinah glory cloud, it appeared to them again, and it went ahead of them the six miles from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem, and apparently stopped over the actual house where Jesus was. But what I want you to see is that these men who were wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus as Messiah sought him with all their hearts. They traveled 800 miles from their homeland to come and find him. They, they asked all around Jerusalem, where is he, where is he, where is he? Finally, they learn from Herod where he is and, and they march on to, to discover him. Listen, if you are devoted to Jesus Christ like them, you will invest your time, your energy, your life in seeking Him. Now, they had to travel 800 miles to find Jesus. All we have to do is open up the pages of this book. But if you're wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, you will seek Him there. Secondly, Wholehearted devotion expresses itself by rejoicing in Him. Rejoicing in Him. Notice verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They had seen this star, whatever it was, probably again the the visible display of the glory of God like the shepherds saw on the night of Jesus' birth. They had seen it in their home country. And then they had traveled to Israel without seeing the star again until now. And notice their reaction. Literally, the Greek text says this. They rejoiced with a mega joy extremely. They rejoiced with a mega joy extremely. They were overwhelmed with joy. And folks, their joy was not about seeing the star Their joy was that the star was pointing them to the divine Messiah whom Daniel had prophesied would make an end of sin. This is what genuine devotion to Jesus always looks like. Not only does it seek Him out with one's whole heart, but it finds its greatest joy in Him. A third characteristic of devotion to Jesus that we see in these men is submitting to him. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child. By the way, this is how we know that this was not on the night of Jesus' birth. There's no stable here. There's no manger here. We find them instead living in a house. They had gone back to Nazareth and brought their belongings back to Bethlehem, had moved into Bethlehem and into a house there. 
After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground. You see, these men believed that this child was Israel's rightful king, and more than that, he was the divine Messiah. And so what do they do? They fell on their faces. The the word is to prostrate oneself on the ground. Now remember, at this time, Jesus is somewhere between 40 days old and two years old. And here are these powerful, influential men, kingmakers from their own country, who had traveled there with a, likely a large contingent accompanying them. And when they find this child, they fall on their face before him. This was a physical expression of their submission In the ancient world, when you bowed before a king, you were acknowledging his position, his authority, his right to rule, his right to rule you. They were acknowledging that this child was Lord, that he was their Lord. And this is always how true faith responds to Jesus. It responds in submission to him as king. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus is also characterized by worshiping him. Verse 11 goes on to say, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell to the ground, and they worshiped him. The two expressions together at the end of verse 11 make it clear that this was not merely the typical homage paid to a Middle Eastern monarch. In Scripture, prostrating yourself on the ground is typically reserved for one's response to God. The next expression makes it very clear. Look at the word worshipped. Every other time Matthew uses the word worship in his gospel, referring to Jesus, it is always true biblical worship. And there's no reason to believe that this is any exception. In other words, these men had come to believe that Jesus was the divine Messiah, and they prostrated themselves on the ground and worshipped him as God. Verse 11 tells us in their worship, they also noticed, opened their treasures. The the Greek word has the idea of of opening a, a sort of treasure box or treasure chest. And from that, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Since the early church fathers, Christians have believed and taught that the Magi intended to send a message in each of these three gifts. And I think that's likely true because of how these items are used in the rest of Scripture. Take gold, for example. Gold is rarely owned by individuals in biblical times. It was always associated with royalty. In fact, the Roman orator Seneca said that it was the custom in Persia where this caste began that no one approached the king without a gift, and he said that gold, the king of metals, was the only proper gift to a king. Frankincense comes from the old French franc incense, which means pure incense. This aromatic resin from trees that grow primarily in Arabia and India was used in incense and in perfumes, but Frankincense occurs most frequently in the Old Testament in connection with the service of God. In fact, 
it was even part, frankincense was even part of the incense that was burned daily in the temple, representing the prayers of God's people. So gold is associated with kings, incense with God. Myrrh is a reddish-brown resin, the dried sap of a tree that grows especially in Arabia. It was very valuable. In fact, in ancient days, it was worth more than its weight in gold. Myrrh was used in three ways in the ancient world. It was used as perfume to make life more pleasant. It was used as a painkiller to make pain less severe. And it was used as an embalming fragrance to make death and burial less repulsive. It's interesting that according to the gospel record, myrrh was used in all three of those ways in the life of Jesus. Here at his birth, it's a fragrance, a perfume. Mark tells us in Mark 15 that it was part of a painkiller that was given to him or attempted to be given to him at his crucifixion. And John 19 says that it was a fragrance used in his embalming. William Hendrickson, the Presbyterian commentator, says they presented him with gifts that were not only lavish, but also definitely appropriate. Gold, for he was and is indeed a king, king of kings and lord of lords. Frankincense, for he is indeed God. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. And myrrh, for he is also man, destined for death, and this by his own choice. But the most important thing about these gifts is that all three of them are very rare and are therefore incredibly valuable. It was common to bring such gifts to a king when you entered his presence to honor him. And so these gifts then were lavish expressions of worship and adoration of Jesus Christ as king. These men model for us the only right response to the king lavish, unrestrained devotion. Devotion that seeks Him above all other things. Devotion that finds its greatest joy in life in Him. Devotion that willingly submits to His will and that worships Him with the most valuable gifts that we have, our very lives. Notice verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country, I love this, by another way. Obviously, the main point of that statement is their actual physical journey. They had probably come up over the Fertile Crescent, from Babylon up over the Fertile Crescent, down the main trade route to Jerusalem. But they left by the route that would have taken them out of Herod's influence the quickest, probably directly east across the Jordan and then up the Jordan Rift Valley. But I think that phrase also has an irony to it because I think it reminds us that of their spiritual journey. In the recent past, they had likely been pagan idolaters, but they left by another way as worshipers of the true God, embracing His divine Messiah as the Old Testament had foretold. So what's the point of the story? Why did God send the Magi to Israel? Well, several reasons stand out. God used it, first of all, as the means of their salvation. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker, wise men still seek him. And of course, in a sense, that's true. 
But the only reason these wise men came seeking Christ is because God had first sought them. 600 years before, God had given the ancestors of these men the Scripture and Daniel, his prophet, and he had preserved that spiritual influence for hundreds of years so that these men would come to know his son. Then when Jesus was finally born, he sent them a supernatural sign, the star, whatever it was, to mark the fact that he'd been born, and God directed them where to find this child. You see, the story of the wise men, like that of the shepherds, is a story of sovereign grace. Ultimately, it's not a story of their seeking Jesus. It's a story of God seeking them. Maybe on this Christmas Day, God, through the good news about Jesus, is seeking you today. God sent these men to find their rightful king, and he did it to accomplish their own salvation. Remember what the context of this story is? At the end of chapter 1 of Matthew, in Matthew 1.21, Gabriel tells Joseph, name the baby Jesus, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And in the very next paragraph, we meet some very unlikely candidates for that salvation. God sovereignly reached down into the paganism of the former Babylonian empire, and he snatched these men in grace to himself. God also sent the Magi, secondly, as a testimony that the Messiah had come. Have you ever thought about the fact that God could have had the star simply lead them directly to Bethlehem? They could have seen Jesus and his mother, and they could have left and never interacted with the people of Israel. But as an expression of God's grace, God sent them to Jerusalem to prepare the people for the ministry of his son. He was giving a testimony, and frankly, this story is a powerful testimony to everyone who reads it, that Messiah has come. He's come. God's promise of the anointed one who would come and deal with sin, it's true. He came. He was born in Bethlehem as the prophet Micah had said that he would be. And he was more than an earthly king. He was divine and therefore truly deserving of worship, of your worship. This story also serves thirdly as an invitation to believe the gospel. You see, Jesus is the rightful king. He's the rightful king of the Jews. He's the rightful king of the Gentiles, represented by these magi. He's the rightful king of every person on this planet. He is your rightful king. And this story is an invitation to you on this Christmas day. It's an invitation to join the magi at Jesus' feet. Not the baby in a manger, but the one who would grow up in perfection, who would live a perfect life, the life you should have lived and then would die on the cross, suffering the justice of God for the sins of everyone who would ever believe in Him so that God could forgive those who would repent and believe in His Son. It's an invitation to you. So the question this morning is, who in this story do you most resemble? Which response to Jesus in this story is your response to Jesus. I want you to really ask yourself that this morning. 
You see, this passage is a mirror, and it allows you to see your own soul from the vantage point of God himself. Because everyone here this morning is in this passage. Your response is one of these responses to Jesus the King. Is it settled indifference? Is it religious distraction? Is it selfish defiance? Or is it wholehearted devotion? Today, as you celebrate with your family and friends, as you enjoy this Christmas day, remind yourself that this child whose birth you celebrate is your rightful king. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of Let Earth Receive Her King. Tom will have part three for us next time, and we'd love it if you joined us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.